I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 12. I don't know if we'll have it on the screen or not. There are Bibles available. And if you need a Bible um, to take it with you, and you're welcome to do that. I want to encourage you to do that. So I'll be reading from this letter written by the Apostle Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2. And I'll be reading verses 4 through 12. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passion of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Would you pray with me? Father, your word says that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but your word stands forever that your word does not come back void, but it does accomplish that which you intend in our lives. And so, Lord, we ask that you would speak through your word to us, that you would equip us to love you better and to love one another as you have loved us. That we might reflect your glory. We might see people drawn to you in the way that we love you and and love one another and love others, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you remember where you were on October 8th 2001. 
Anyone remember where you were on October 8th, 2001? It's a day of infamy. It was approximately my wife and I and our only child at the time, two-year-old daughter, had moved to Tulsa. We had been to Tulsa from, we had moved to Tulsa from Philadelphia. We had only been there for six, we had been here for six months. And we had just put our daughter down to bed for the night, and we turned on the evening news. And it was on October 8th, 2001. The top story of the night, the Oklahoma Sooners had beaten the Texas Longhorns in the Red River shootout. And the news anchor had made this announcement, and they'd gone live to a reporter, and they interviewed a few players, and they came back to the news anchor, and the news anchor said, and in other news tonight, we went to war with Afghanistan. Priorities. Passion. My wife looked at it, we looked at each other when we heard that news, and we said, we are not in Philadelphia anymore. We thought these people loved football, but they are passionate about it. They're crazy about it. You don't have to be that way with sports. You can be passionate about a TV show. Who's going to watch the episode of Downtown Abbey? Hey, have you caught the, new, the beginning of the new series of 24? Come on, it's, it's great. And we, can, we can't wait to talk around the water cooler at work. We can't wait to, to, to talk. We can talk to strangers about these kinds of things. We are passionate about it. And I would submit to you this morning that God has something for us that can fill us with even greater joy and passion as we embrace our calling to be a missional church, to be the church sent out by Jesus Christ on mission in our everyday lives. And I want us to see three things from our passage this morning that would enable us to be that kind of church sent out on mission. We need to be passionate about three things that are in our text this morning. And the first thing is to be passionate about Jesus. Did you notice the way that Peter spoke about Jesus in this passage? Probably a little bit foreign language to us, talking about living stones, talking about rocks, talking about this thing of a cornerstone. But you see, Peter is talking to Christians that have been exiles, that are scattered about because of persecution that they're facing for following Jesus. And so Peter wants to remind his readers, what is your only hope in the midst of this persecution? What's going to keep it together What's going to enable you to press on in the midst of this persecution and suffering? It's going to be the fact that they're reminded of their identity. 
of who they belong to and what they are called to do. And that's where this idea of a a stone, a precious stone, a cornerstone that has been laid in Zion for them. And this image of the cornerstone comes from the Old Testament. We read in Isaiah 28, the Lord speaking through the prophet Isaiah says, Behold, I'm the one who is laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. In that context, the Lord is reminding his people who are about to go into exile that the nations were coming upon God's people, the Israelites, and they were going to be taken off into captivity. And the temptation of those people was to put their trust in this royal city, Jerusalem. This is, our, this is where our hope is found. And the Lord is reminding them, no. There's a stone that is the foundation whom you are to put your hope in, this precious cornerstone. In Psalm 118, which we read in our call to worship this morning, the psalmist states that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And the image there... Commentators go back and forth as to what is this cornerstone? Is it the, is it the, the, the foundational stone? Is it the headstone, the cornerstone? Is, the, is it holding things together? The image is that this is a stone that is holding everything together. And if it's taken away, the whole building crumbles. And the picture in Psalm 18 is this precious cornerstone Builders reject. They're like, this is insignificant. This is nothing. We need to reject this. Let's get another stone. But God's saying it's that very stone that is the very cornerstone that's going to hold everything together. And ultimately, that speaks of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ himself was rejected by the religious leaders of his day. But he's become the cornerstone, the foundational stone, the living stone for our faith. It's in him that everything holds together. It's in him that our hope is found, that we sung about. And so in Acts chapter 4, Peter can go on to say this cornerstone is none other than Jesus Christ. And that salvation can be found in no other name but in Jesus' name. And so in this letter, Peter says that through this rejected cornerstone, we too are being made into living stones, being built into a spiritual house, a royal priesthood, able to offer ourselves as living sacrifices acceptable to God. How astonishing. Sinners, people who, like the builders, rejected Christ, yet are being brought in and are able to have lives that are acceptable to him. 
Peter goes on to tell us something else about this stone. It's chosen and precious. Chosen by God as God's instrument of salvation, part of, as God's plan to bring people to a right relationship with him is to send his one and only son to be a sacrifice for us in our place. But the other word is precious. The language of precious in precious gemstones. This Jesus is precious to the Father. No doubt, as Peter is penning these words, he has in mind Jesus' baptism. You know the voice that in Jesus' baptism that comes from heaven that says, This is my Son, whom I am well pleased. This is my Son, whom I am well pleased. Precious to the Father. No doubt, Jesus' perfect life and obedience and his perfect death on the cross is also a picture for us that God, that this Jesus is precious to him, that he would give his only son, and that ultimately through his son, he would bring living stones, that he would bring us into a right relationship with him. Now, here is the good news of the gospel for you. That through this Jesus, you too are precious to the Father. It is because of Jesus that you are chosen and precious to him, holy and dearly loved, set apart. That we are born again to a living hope through the living Jesus Christ. He's the living stone because he's not dead. He's resurrected. And you are a living stone because through him, though you were dead in your sin, you're made alive in Jesus Christ. And now you're a royal priesthood. And so... It makes sense that Peter will go on to say in verse 7, So the honor is for you who believe. It is an honor. It is precious. What could be more precious in the people in the midst of their suffering for following Jesus than the fact that Jesus, the living stone, a sure foundation, is there for you. In him, we put our hope. In him, we find our salvation. You see, Jesus becomes very precious to you when you recognize that your only hope for your spiritual life is found in him. Several years ago, a couple came to me because this man had been caught in attempting to have another affair. He was looking online for someone else he could hook up with. 
He was turning 60 years old that year, and he thought, I need to have one more fling to prove that I'm somebody, that I'm worth something. And his wife caught him. And he became undone. But his wife couldn't take it, and she left him. And he pursued her, and he said to her, I will do whatever it takes to get you back. And she spoke the most profound theological words you'll ever hear. She said to him, I don't think you know what it takes. I don't think you have what it takes to get me back. And as he was relaying that story, sitting in my office, tears came streaming down his eyes, and he said, Barry, what if I don't have what it takes? You see, that was the beginning for him to understand how precious Jesus really was to him. Because in that moment, he realized that Jesus was his only hope to restore his marriage. How about you? When was the last time when you thought or prayed, Lord Jesus, unless you show up, I'm dead. Maybe it's a relationship with your spouse. Maybe it's with your kids. Maybe it's with a coworker or a colleague. And you've been forced against the, your back is against the wall. And you recognize that unless Jesus shows up, I'm dead. It's been like that, a wild roller coaster ride for the last eight months for me and my family as we are getting ready to plant a church in Pennsylvania. And I have many times waking up in the middle of the night saying, What am I doing? What have I done? Am I crazy? Jesus, unless you show up, Financially, unless you work in the hearts of the people that we're going to minister, unless you work in our hearts and prepare our family to go, we're dead. But you see, that's what it means to be a Christian. That Jesus is so precious to you. Jesus is so precious to you, not only... That to become a Christian, to trust in the once and for all substitutional death of Christ for you. But Jesus is the whole of your life. That your life is one vast need of Him, and you are dependent upon Him. Isn't that what non-Christians really need to see in us? Many times we want to show non-Christians how great we've become because of Jesus. But shouldn't it be how great we need Jesus? They need to see our need for Jesus on and on. You see, that's the difference between a traditional testimony that says, once I was a sinner... I believe in Jesus Christ. He cleaned me up. 
and now my life is beautiful. Rather than, or instead, now, it's an ongoing thing. I came to Jesus Christ, and I continue to come to him in need of him for my life. That's what makes Jesus so precious to us. And we become passionate about him. And it becomes so infectious that we become passionate about making him known. You see in verses 9 and 10, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had received mercy, not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And Peter is drawing on three Old Testament passages to, to summarize the beauty. He's drawing together of what we are now as the, as the church of Jesus Christ sent on mission. In Isaiah 43, God declares to the prophet, The Lord, the wild beast, will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness. Rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I form for myself, that they may declare my praise. In Exodus 19, right before God gives his people the Ten Commandments, he declares, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And then in Hosea chapter 2, the Lord declares to a wicked, rebellious people who have whored themselves in spiritual adultery after other gods. And he speaks tenderly to them. And he says, And I will sow her for myself in the land. And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, You are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. Now the amazing thing is God is speaking to his people of the Old Testament, the Israelites. But we get a hint towards the end of the Old Testament, and certainly in the New Testament, that this language of being brought in is not just for rebellious Israelites, but it is for all of the nations. The Gentiles will be brought into him. And so in Isaiah 19, 24 to 25, the prophet says, In that day Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt my people, and Assyria the work of my hands. 
and Israel my inheritance. You see, Jesus now redefines who the people of God are and redefines who the priesthood really is. You see, in the past, it, the priesthood made up of these, you know, these called men, the Levites, were only able to go into the inner holy of holies and offer sacrifices on behalf of the people and to speak to God. Now, through Jesus Christ, we are all made royal priests. We all now can go and have a relationship with God directly through Christ himself, who offered himself once and for all in our place. So now we are incorporated into this spiritual house. But did you notice what Peter says Fascinating what he says here. He says, you are set apart people. You're a holy nation. And you are God-possessed. You belong to God. But don't stop there. Why? In order that you may declare, in order that you may make known the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness. You see, God never intends when he calls the people to himself, when he calls the church to himself, we hear this good news of, of the message of Christ dying for us, but he never intends that to be just for ourselves. But we are sent out. Think, for example, God's calling of Abraham in the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 12, God says to Abraham, I will bless those, I will be a blessing to you, and I will bless those who bless you, and, I, and through you I will bless all of the nations. You see that? The good news is not just for ourselves, but it is to be spread abroad, and is sent out to be made known. Two ways that we do this. There's this thing that we do on Sunday mornings that it is supposed to be, we corporately, we, we declare the good news that we've been delivered out of darkness in our sin, much like Israelite, Israel was delivered out of slavery to Egypt. And we make that known through songs, we make that known through readings. We make it known through our fellowship together. And that's what theologians call doxological evangelism. You can go home and say, I've learned two beautiful words this morning. Doxological evangelism. What that simply means, doxological means praise. And through our praise, in our midst, we make Jesus known. We Make him known to others who may come who don't know the good news about Jesus Christ. But it's not just for our corporate gatherings. It is as we're sent out during the week. And there are many implications, but I want you to think about this. 
Do you exist as a church? Does Trinity exist to make the name of the Lord famous throughout Owasso? Or does Owasso exist to make Trinity great? You see, those two different questions, very different postures. The first says, we are here to serve Owasso. We are here to love the people of Owasso. Wherever we go, we put on the banner of Jesus Christ in our work, in our community. We, we exist to make Jesus great here in Owasso. The other says, come to us. See if you can fit in. See if you can break in our circles. If you, if you become like us, yeah, well, you're welcome. Uh, and we really need to make everything about serving our own needs and, and our programs. You see, that's a process that becomes ingrown. But as those who are God-possessed, set apart, Trinity exists to make God's name famous throughout Owasso. One of the practical examples my wife and I have had um, over the last nine years that our kids have been in a local elementary school, we have initially gone in to read to their class, to help out the teacher in different ways. And over the course of nine years, we've been able to serve the administration, serve the teachers, serve the students. The teachers go, you're not just here for your own kids, are you? No. My wife has done a lot of tutoring, fundraising for the school, there to seek the welfare of that school and those people. We have been able to share Christ. We, I've, been, I've done funerals. I've done weddings for people that have gone to that school, to the family, extended families involved there. Just an example. What would it look like for you to dream in your place? What does it look like in your vocation, in your homes, in your community to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light? Well, finally... This leads to a passion to make, to spread his glory wherever we go. To be the missional church wherever we go. And Peter speaks two ways about this. Negatively, we are to abstain, right, from the passions of the flesh which wage war against our soul. The language there is that we are exiled. We are people set apart. And so there are things that we are called to abstain. In Peter's day, of course, the culture was rampant with idolatry and, and sexual immorality. You know, the psychologist Sigmund Freud said, you know, the ultimate goal... The ultimate purpose in life is to have unrepressed desires, right? To be free to do whatever you want. But the logical course of that, unrepressed desires, 
right? It, 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 it wreaks havoc on our lives because things that God made, we make into ultimate things, food, sex, money, power, people's approval. They become like drug addictions to us, right? They're never satisfying. They're never enough. But then they also wreak havoc on our relationships. If I live for my own personal desires and passions, what does that do in my relationship with my wife and my kids? What does that do in the relationship to the people around me? It affects my love for them and my witness. So negatively, abstain. Positively, the way that we conduct our lives, to live our lives in such a way that unbelievers can see. And in this context, Paul's, Peter is speaking to people who are suffering persecution. And the way that they respond to that is a witness to them. No doubt, Peter has the words of Jesus in the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. But if you read on from beyond our text, you'll see what Peter actually means. The way that we relate to those in authority, our conduct towards authority, our conduct towards our coworkers, our conduct in the way that we relate to our spouse and our children, and on and on and on. In other words, it touches every sphere of our lives. And Peter expects that to bear fruit. He says in, in 1 Peter 3.1, we see unbelieving husbands coming to know the Lord. Let me just close with two implications of this. How do we spread the glory of God? Well, I've alluded to it. But to think of your calling, your vocation, is not uh, just merely a job, but it's a place where you can display the glory of God in the way that you act, and you're there to serve the workers. Listen, the kingdom of greatness in the kingdom of God is not how far up the ladder you can climb but how far down the ladder you're willing to climb in order to bring others up. Let me say that again. Greatness in the kingdom of God is not how far up the ladder you climb, but how far down the ladder you're willing to climb in order to bring others up. What a way to serve those around us. And then finally, we have to be intentional about rubbing shoulders with non-believers. We just have to be intentional. And let me throw out some practical ways to do this, just real simply. And, and some of them are common sense. Perhaps you've already done these things. But to remind us, eat and socialize with non-Christians. It's an idea. Frequent the same places. Do you intentionally go into the same places so you can meet the people that you uh, that are that work there and the owners or whatever, it's a great way. There was a guy who was reading. Uh, one of our elders of our church were reading a book on evangelism, 
and he would bring his book to the restaurant that he went to regularly, and he would sit there, and he's reading it, and he was annoyed that the waitress was coming up and bothering him as he was reading, and, he's, and it was in his mind he was saying, go away, I'm reading a book about how to be a better witness. He recognized, he was convicted of that, he laid the book down, and he got to know the waitress and other workers in that restaurant and learn some very profound things and share with others. Walk around your neighborhood, get to know your neighbors, hobby with non-Christians, volunteer with non-profits, serve your neighbors, participate in citywide events, and my personal favorite is ask non-Christians for help. It seems maybe paradoxical, but it's a great way to recognize, to show them that you have needs too, that you continue to need Jesus. And oh, by the way, you need him too. You need the good news. To be the church that is sent out on mission is to be passionate about Jesus, passionate about making him known, and passionate about spreading his glory. Let's pray together. Father, you are rich. Uh, Lord, um, you say the harvest is plenty, but the workers are few. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. Father, in this room are answers to that prayer. Lord, in this community, Lord, we desire to see Owasso to be transformed uh, where uh, broken lives are mended, where, where sinners are rescued from their sin. That marriages are restored, Lord. That um, families are made whole. Lord, that people work with purpose and significance. And Lord, we ask that through uh, your spirit, that you would lead us um, in the gospel as we believe and make that good news known to others. In Jesus' name, amen.